Thank you, Matt. Good to have you with us again, and Paul never leaves us stranded. He always brings such wonderful musicians and artists. Good morning. Um, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25, and this morning we're only reading 18 verses as opposed to the 67 we read last Sunday. Uh, this is page 22, if you have your um, ESV Pew Bible in front of you, Genesis 25. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dadan. The sons of Dadan were Ashurim, Latushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Elda'a. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order, the order of their birth. Nibaeth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled in Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words of your scripture which are beneficial to us and teach us many things. And we pray, Lord, that you would illuminate by the power of your Holy Spirit these your words, that you would illuminate on our hearts and in our minds what it is that you would have us to see about your character, about who you are. 
helping us to grow, not just in head knowledge, but to grow in heart knowledge, to grow in love, to grow in care, to grow in the fruit of, spirit, of the Spirit. Father, that we would be more Christ-like each and every day, for we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In 2016, there was a man in Normandy, France, whose ancestors had died, and he was given all of their furniture. And not sure what to do with the furniture, he had an appraiser come and look at it to see if it was worth anything, thinking maybe a few dollars here and there, and I'll sell this and take the money and go do something. And uh, when he got to their home and was moving the furniture around, a couple of these little tin boxes fell out from under the furniture. And when he opened the tin box, he found that it contained gold pieces. Uh, The appraiser and the man searched more and more of the furniture, and they kept finding more and more gold. Well, his uh, family had bought a lot of gold legally and had decided they were going to hide it in their furniture. And so that's what they did. And so this man who thought he had just inherited a few bad, ugly pieces of furniture instead ended up with a fortune. The unassuming nature and look of things can make us assume that there is nothing of real great value there, when in reality, though it may not look important, it can carry tremendous weight. And that is an example of what we have here in Genesis 25, in the first 18 verses, where at first glance, what do we see? We, we're looking at an obituary. We're looking at a, a genealogy of a whole bunch of unpronounceable names. And if I've fooled you, I've, I've done a fantastic job. I, even as I read it, I knew I was pronouncing a few of them incorrectly. But what do we find? If we, if we, take, if we look at Scripture, if we just shake it a little bit, if we move the furniture, so to speak, just a little bit, we, we, we do some investigating. We do a little bit of work. We find a treasure trove of lessons, uh, uh, of reminders about God and his character and who he is and what he is doing and his purposes. And so our first point this morning is the faithfulness and genealogies. Faithfulness and genealogies. Well, we run into an issue here in verse 1 with Keturah. Abraham takes another wife, Keturah, and you might think that Abraham married Keturah after the death of Sarah, because the writer gives us that information, after the death of Sarah, and it says that she gave him six sons. But if you remember back in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 17, Abraham seemed to indicate that at 100 years, he doesn't have a lot of uh, vitality and fertility left. So if he's had these children through Keturah, it's probably that he had them before Sarah died. And you say, well, that's not God's design for marriage, according to Genesis chapter 2 of one man and one woman. Well, we've already seen that Abraham's messed that up with Hagar. And sometimes people, shockingly, follow their cultural practices over divine uh, uh, intention, Do we ever see that? 
Do we ever see that in our world? Goodness. We see that all the time. So the Bible, all the Bible has to do is tell us the truth. It doesn't have to give us the exact chronological order. There's a reason that uh, Moses is finishing up with the story of Sarah and, and, and Isaac, and then comes back and mentions Keturah after. Now, we don't know where most of these descendants of Keturah were. We know that Midian was originally in northwest Arabia. Ishbak seems to be a, a northern Syrian tribe. Sheba is in the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula. We're not really sure about the rest, but verses 5 and 6 says... Abraham provided well for these descendants of his, and he sent them away from Isaac. Isaac was to be the sole heir. And in verses 7 through 18, we see God's faithfulness. Look at verses 7 and 8. Abraham lived 175 years He breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years. That's a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 15, verse 15, where God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And what does verse 8 say? that God was faithful to his promise. Genesis 15, 15 has been fulfilled. Go to verses 9 and 10. Abraham is buried in the cave of Machpelah, which he purchased from Ephron the Hittite in Genesis chapter 23, if you remember that, that that is where Sarah was buried. And if you remember when we looked at that chapter, that this was the beginning of the, of the land promise being fulfilled to Abraham and to his seed. God has been faithful again. Then verse 11. Isaac settled near Beer Lahai Roy. That's the name that Hagar gave to the well. When I think she could have used a Beer Lahai Roy If you remember, she was running away from Sarah, who was mistreating her at that time. The well of the one who lives and sees me. Just the name of the well reminds us of what was being what was taking place in that in that scene there in Genesis 16. The, the, The kindness that Hagar felt as God watched over her, a slave. Egyptian woman. Then in verses 12 through 18, we have another division of characters and more fun names. We see here the descendants of Ishmael. He has 12 sons. He's He's a very fertile boy. But we've seen what we have here is another fulfillment of God's word. Remember back to Genesis chapter 16 and verses 10 through 12, and God says to Hagar at the well that she will have a son and that God would multiply her seed. And then in chapter 17, verse 20, God said to Abraham that he would make Ishmael fruitful and that he would father 12 princes. And what do we have here in Genesis 25, 16? 
12 princes of Ishmael. We have these instances where, where God was faithful. He, he brought or, or, or was bringing about what he said he would do. This is not just a, a dull list and a boring genealogy with unpronounceable names. It indicates that what God promises, he brings to fulfillment. And who doesn't need to hear that? Think of the original audience wandering in the desert, how, how, how desperately they needed to hear this. They're starting to think that God has abandoned them or that God would not fulfill his purpose, that he would not actually bring them to the land that he had promised them. They would never make it to the land. And these events in Genesis 25 are, are, are not the types of the things that slap you across the face and say, oh, can't, how do you not see that? But rather, they are subtle. They are low-key accomplishments of what Yahweh had promised. This should give the people of God confidence in Him, confidence in His promises, confidence in His character. We need this. We need the subtleties to ring true for us, to, 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 for us to have confidence. During Desert Storm, uh, American troops dropped leaflets uh, for Iraqi soldiers that essentially had a small uh, hand-drawn picture and uh, itemized descriptions on, on these little leaflets, and they were essentially, this is how you surrender in war. And here's what we're going to promise you. And in the pictures, and I, I've seen them, I, I wish I had the image to show to you, but they tried several different strategies, promising safety, protection, reunification with family. And so you would see a, a little box with a picture of a, an Iraqi soldier with his family. Again, it's just a kind of a crudely drawn um, picture. But it's, you know, it's like, hey, we're trying to give you this picture and then explain, like, hey, you come to this place and you hand over your weapons and, and then you'll be reunited with your family. Or, or then you'll be given... Uh, you know, you have a future in all this. But none of that was effective. No one was surrendering when those leaflets were dropped. And so they tried several other different methodologies. And, and one was a picture of soldiers eating together, gathered around a big sort of pile of food. And in the pile of food, there was a picture. One of the items of many items was a banana Bananas are a delicacy in Iraq, and they had not had any bananas supply for a year. And all of a sudden, all these Iraqi soldiers start showing up to surrender. And every time they're handing over their weapons and everything, they kept saying, banana, where's my banana? Where's my banana? Where's my banana? They want to know where the banana is. And the Americans are like, don't, don't you want to be reunited with your family? Don't you want protection? And they just want the banana. It seems so insignificant from our perspective. A picture of a banana, but it has massive consequences. You have to dig around a bit, but if you look, you find the faithfulness of God in these verses. Abraham was not experiencing some, you know, medical miracle here. 
There hasn't been some ecstatic event in this section. God wraps his faithfulness sometimes in plain packaging. Subtle, unassuming ways that might not blow you away at first glance. You were probably not blown away as I read those verses to you. But if we are paying attention to it, you begin to realize you don't need sensational signs and wonders all the time. You, you don't need sensationalized testimonies because you have Ishmael's genealogy. Because you have the well at Beer Lahai Roy. Because you have the cave of Machpelah that speaks to you in their own quiet voice of the faithfulness of God. And you know that if God was faithful to his word here thousands of years ago, you can also rest on him when he says, he who comes to me, I will never cast out. Or when he says, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish and no one can snatch them from my hand. And you know it is real and you know it can be trusted because God has proved himself faithful over and over and over in the scriptures, in the big amazing miracles and in the little subtleties like this. Faithfulness in genealogy, second, faithfulness in death. Verses 7 through 10, Abraham gets four verses for his obituary here. But I want us to focus in on this one little clause in verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. And I want us to pay special attention to this little phrase here, gathered to his people. It's a phrase that's used in this exact chapter in verse 17, which we read, in describing Ishmael. It's used, in, uh, it's used of Isaac in Genesis chapter 35. It's used of Jacob in Genesis chapter 49. It's used of Aaron in Numbers chapter 20. And it's used of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. So what does it mean? Well, it does not refer to death does not refer to death. Notice it says, Abraham breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. So it's an event that takes place after death. It's also not the same as burial in an ancestral uh, plot or grave. If you remember, Abraham is buried in the cave of Machpelah. There are no ancestors there, only Sarah is there. Aaron in Numbers 20 died on the way to the promised land, and he is not buried with his people, and neither was Moses in Deuteronomy 34. And both of them, it is said, they were gathered to their people. So whatever it means, it does not equate with a, 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 an ancestral burial tomb, family tomb. It's also not the same as general burial. That happens separately in verse 9, of which we read, 
If you read of Jacob in uh, Genesis 49, he is gathered to his people, but he's not buried until Genesis chapter 50, the next chapter. There's like a two-month gap in there. So it's not death, it's not an ancestral tomb, and it's not burial. So what is it? Gathered, let's think about the phrase here, gathered to his people, people referring to ancestry, but they too are dead. And they are spoken of as if they still exist. That's the point. His people, though they have died, still exist. So the gathering implies that that men and women survive to be with their ancestors in the realm of the dead. And so death cannot be annihilation. Why does this matter? Because there are some who ask and, and surmise, you know, what did the ancients really know and understand about death? You know, they were, they were very simple-minded people. Did they just think that you just died and that was it? That was the end? Well, here we have an extremely early text that's showing us that they did understand. It's not a development that came later. Ancient Israel had a recognition of ongoing existence in the face of death. We have to point this is not the victory of 1 Corinthians 15. This is not the comfort of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This isn't even the relief you get in the last chapters of the Gospels. But it hints at hope. Though shrouded, though very dim, But we must not make light of hope that is given in the Scriptures. And it tells us at least this much. Death, though mysterious as it is, does not end my existence. We've already seen this in Genesis chapter 17 with the sacrifice of Isaac. Chapter 23 with the death of Sarah. that, That there was a resurrection hope and a faith of looking forward to an ultimate future and a land that is greater than than the promised land, than the land that Israel will take. The The point here is that a little line like this, and he was gathered to his people. Once again, it may not leap off the page at us, It might look dim compared to what we have in the New Testament, but it is still yet another message of the reality of life after death. Think again of the original audience who's reading this in the wilderness, the volumes that this would speak to them as they consider their life, as they can consider their faithfulness. Psalm 139 verse 8, David writes and says, Even if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I go down to Sheol, the grave, behold, you are there. There's nowhere I can go to escape you. Even if I die, you are there to greet me. And the gospel for us is that if you have the faith of Abraham, not only are you gathered to your people, but you greet God himself. Faithfulness in genealogies, faithfulness in death, 
And finally, faithfulness in purpose, purposes. Verse 11, now after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. That formula doesn't occur anywhere else in the Pentateuch, in the, in the first five books. But it does occur in other places in Scripture. It occurs in Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. It occurs in Judges chapter 1, verse 1. It occurs in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses is Joshua 1, 1. After the death of Joshua is Judges 1.1, and after the death of Saul is 2 Samuel 1.1. It's a formula that indicates a historical turning point. It has this overt overtone of uncertainty and fear. After the death of Moses, what? Moses is dead? What are they going to do? What's going to happen now? The main character for the last several books is now gone. Even though the people treated Moses so poorly, blaming him, complaining to him, threatening him, but now he's gone and it's like, oh no, what are we going to do now? We have that here. After the death of Abraham, he, he, he's been the main character with us for 13 chapters, or in y'all's case, for, since June of last year. Abraham is very dear to us, so this is a, we, should, we should have a little funeral service. We'll have a better, we'll have a communion service that'll be better. What's going to happen now? Now our patriarch is, is gone. Well, what will happen with the purposes of God? What will happen with the plans of God? How, how, how can he continue? The text says, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. Isaac was no Abraham. I, I think most of us know that, and we're, we're going to get to know that over the next 17 weeks. Just kidding. Isaac's very short. But then again, it didn't depend on Abraham anyway. Not even Abraham is indispensable. This text is telling us that God's servants die. But God's promises and his plan continues. I remember talking to someone at a wedding a few Years ago, and this older individual kept saying, I don't see the next generation of, of church leaders. Where are the R.C. Sproles? Where are the Billy Grahams? Where are the Pipers and the Kellers and the MacArthur's? Which I think MacArthur's going to outlive everyone. Where are the Michael Yousef's? Who will rise up? And the message of Genesis 25 is... When God's servants die, God's promise and plans continue. The death of an individual, no matter how influential, does not signal the end of God's cause. God just keeps on bringing his kingdom. 
There's a story from uh, the Civil War era where these Confederate troops, a large amount of them, had trapped in a really small uh, group of Union soldiers. And somehow in the crossfire, the leader of the Confederate battalion or whatever it was in that particular skirmish was shot and died. And the Southerners were so distraught that this charismatic leader had died that they start walking off the battlefield. And the Union soldiers are waiting, anticipating that they're finally going to crush them because they think, well, there's so few of us and there's so many of them, this is about to end. And they, they all of a sudden, the leader has died and the men are dispersing and they can't believe it. God is not frustrated by the unavailability of his servants. He, he doesn't need elite leaders. He can do with an Isaac. Okay, hypothetically, worst case scenario, apostles has to shut down, Lord forbid it. And all of the conservative, reformed, evangelical, orthodox, whatever other term you want to throw in there, all those churches close down. And the church of North America starts to look exactly like the culture. What then? Isaiah 45, 23 still remains true. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. God will do what he will do. He doesn't need our approval. By the way, that's good news. Does he call me to serve? Yes. Does he allow me to serve? Yes. Does he need me to serve? No. That is good news. He calls, he allows, he doesn't need you. Don't mishear me. That, that's not an excuse for you to then walk away and wander away. The point is that he's not handcuffed by you. He's the God of Isaiah 46 who says, I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and will save. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That is the God who will bring about his plan and his kingdom and the success of his cause. He is faithful in his purposes. Now, you may still think that genealogies are dull and that stories of death or whatever, but they are likely to tell you more about our God 
than we had ever imagined. And if you were to take all three of our points, you land on the ultimate genealogy of Abraham, and you land on the ultimate resolution to death and being gathered to their people. And you land on the ultimate purpose of the kingdom of God. You land on the Lord Jesus Christ, who came down in an unassuming form, conquered death, and made a way forward for the people of God. And this morning, we get to celebrate what he did, what he accomplished, even as we study his anticipated arrival thousands of years before, we now look back thousands of years with joy and with hope because he is faithful. If you'll pray this with me, all glory to you, our heavenly Father, for in your tender mercy, you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death on the cross for our redemption, who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, and who instituted and in his holy gospel demanded us to continue a perpetual memory of his precious death until his coming again. Hear us. Merciful Father, and grant that we who receive these gifts of your creation, this bread and this wine, according to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his death and passion, may be partakers of his most blessed body and blood, who on the night he was betrayed took bread when he had given you thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given you thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen.